0: episodes of The Catalyst, you know by now that our mandate is to have critical conversations with influential and inspiring changemakers. Because our mandate is so broad, our only stipulation is that our guests cannot be boring. That's a cardinal sin in our book. Thus, we have for you today, changemakers, a man by the incredible name of Ralph Richard Banks, a professor at Stanford Law School, as well as the inaugural faculty director of the Sanford Center for Racial Justice. Professor Banks? Welcome to The Catalyst.
1: Thank you so much. I am delighted to be with you today.
0: Thank you for making the time and allowing me to host you on The Catalyst. More than any other previous guest, I'm especially enthused to interview you as your scholarship touches upon many facets of my own life, background, and identity. In fact, and I mentioned this to you when I first reached out, your book, Is Marriage for White People, was the key secondary source of a final paper in an economics course I took well, before the world ended. So, the title of your book, Is Marriage for White People, it may be taken as a bit incendiary to some, but doing my research for our conversation, I discovered that the title has a rather sad origin story. So, to begin our conversation, could you please relate to the Catalyst community how you landed on the title of your book, Professor Banks?
1: Yeah, well, the, the title is, is a question, and it's a controversial question. Uh, and I Uh, selected that title after reading about uh, a story of a journalist uh, in Washington, D.C., who was going to an elementary school there uh, in an inner city area, uh, economically depressed, uh, an African-American school. And the journalist was going in as a role model and was talking about uh, the importance of, you know, education and working hard and family. Uh, And at some point, you know, emphasize the the benefits of a stable marriage. And one of the children in the class, who was a you know very young child, this is elementary school, you know, innocently and raised, and he innocently raised his hand, and he asked, "Isn't marriage for white people?" And then the journalist describes the the shock of that question: uh, "Is marriage for white people?" As though. You know, stable marital unions were so uh, foreign or so rare that this student didn't even think that black people got married or could get married. So that was the, and it was an arresting moment. So so that was the, where the phrase comes from. Uh, In the book though, I, I intend actually that question to have a double meaning. So the first meaning is is marriage for white people, but not for black people? Because the book charts the decline in marriage among African Americans in particular, right? And talks about that issue. Uh, So one might wonder, you know, is marriage for black people? Um, That's the first meaning. But then the second meaning might be, is marriage even for white people? Because marriage has also been declining quite substantially among whites and people of all backgrounds. If we compare society now to 50 years ago or 80 years ago, uh, marriage rates were much higher than, it was almost a universal uh, stage of life for adults. Uh, yet now we have more unmarried people in the population as a percentage uh, than ever in American history. So uh, the, the title is meant to capture that dual meaning.
0: From my own research for the courses I've took and just from the academic papers I've read, the numbers I've seen are almost always quite somber. And again, these numbers were based upon research done up to the 2010. So ostensibly it could be better. It could be worse. But from what I've seen, the observed medium age at first marriage is roughly four years higher for African American women than for white women. So we're looking at 26, or we're looking at 30 versus 26. Respectfully, and consequently, research shows that a lower proportion of African American women have married at least once by age forty. And I think the most damning statistic, because I think it impacts us all, is that at nearly every age, divorce rates are higher for African American women than for white women. And this statistic, to me, is important because research also shows that divorced women are two point eight three times higher to end up in poverty than women who remain married. And of course, there's nuance with everything, so. That's not to say that women should stay in marriages that are heinous, but that we should recognize that divorce often leads to a lower standard of living and you know economic hardship for women. So in your book, Professor Banks, you talk extensively about the mating milieu. So before we can even get married, we have to start dating, right? When it comes to dating, when it comes to people they have access to, when it comes to their own preferences, what does that look like from what you've observed?
1: So in order to understand what marriage Uh, has become for African Americans, we need to understand what marriage has become for people throughout American society, how the meaning of marriage has changed and how the uh, expectations for marriage have changed. The dominant ideal of marriage now, which is actually fairly unique, uh, is that people want a a soulmate, someone who's uh, like them, that they share a lot with. They have this emotional compatibility, this commonality. Uh, What that translates into in practice is that people marry people who are sort of similar to themselves, right? Someone who is educationally and economically matched. And the idea is that that leads to more compatibility if you have a similar educational level. And this is a stark difference to the way marriage used to be back in the day when relationships were very much role-divided. Men did one thing, women did another thing, and there, were stark, there was a stark divide between them, and you didn't really expect your spouse to be your best friend. Now we do expect that, right? Your spouse to be your best friend. And the challenge for Black women, frankly, is that Black women who are, are educated, who are professionals, uh, who graduate from college, maybe graduate school, uh, there are many more black women who've reached those sort of educational or professional heights than there are black men. So we have this huge numbers mismatch, if you will, between black women and their black male peers, and that's kind of at the heart of the of my book. Actually, is that there is a there's this mismatch in numbers, and so then the question is, well. What do black women do given that there are so many fewer black college graduates, uh, much less black you know, professionals and elite professions than there are among men than there are among women. So, so that's kind of the, the context or the, you know, the, the milieu or the, the setting which creates a, a, a dilemma if you will because for white women, there's no shortage of of white men, frankly, who are doing very well professionally uh, and are doing well educationally. But for black women, there is a shortage of black men. So then black women have three different options given that fact. Uh, One is to marry men who are much less educated or less professionally accomplished. The other is to marry men of other races, right? And interracial marriage has been increasing dramatically. And there's are very high rates of interracial marriage among other groups. Uh, one puzzle is why Black women don't intermarry as much as people from other groups. And then the third option is to remain unmarried. And so of these three options, the two that that are most common statistically, frankly, are either to remain unmarried or to marry a man who's less educated or less professionally accomplished. What black women tend not to do is to marry men of other races. And so kind of the driving, that's that's kind of the driving question of the book is why don't black women marry across race lines in the same way that other groups of people, including black men have begun to marry across racial lines.
0: It's, it's a fascinating question. And there's so many splinters. So the first splinter is that for white women, there are no shortage of white men that are doing, you know, well professionally and have the same educational attainment than them. But quite recently, there was a professor from NYU, Professor Scott Galloway, who came out with this article on his uh, newsletter, No Mercy, No Malice, where he talked about, it was a brilliant title, he called it A Fewer Good Men. And he basically said how college enrollments for Mm -hmm. men and women ostensibly white people, he didn't break that down, but for men and women are 60% to 40%, so 60% women, 40% men. Mm -hmm. And he said, this is fine, but a potential issue could be that in the future, these disparities in educational attainment will lead to an environment in which women won't want to pair up with men who are lower in educational attainment than them, right? So this idea of a sort of mating, as you talked about earlier, people tend to marry people like them, people tend to marry their equal. And as you have noted in the African-American community, that really isn't the case because African-American women will marry men that aren't as educationally yoked, (laughs) to use slang, educationally yoked as them. So that's one sliver, right? Is this idea that this trend could impact the white community in this country. And the other thing you mentioned about is interracial relationships. That is, I think the key question in your book in this sort of like, Shakespearean, to do or not to do type of way, right? Do we marry outside of our race or do we not? And for me, what's been so fascinating as a Black woman to observe in the African American community and in the Black community is who does and does not marry outside of the race, and for what reason, because I think the reason is very important and who gets chastised for doing so. I'd be curious if you could break down your case for interracial relationships because you do mention that it's an option and it's an option that could solve the sort of educational socioeconomic gap that exists. So could you talk more about interracial relationships as it relates to the context of your book?
1: Let me let me first let me make two points or maybe more. So one of the the stories of the the book I think one of the, the points that I the one of the themes that I wanted to emphasize is that often uh you know, Black people are are viewed in some way as, as deviant or exceptional or, or unusual. Uh, and in fact, I mean, I think that's kind of the pathology of American culture, that we view Black people that way and that we can't understand the centrality of the Black experience to the American experience. And in particular, in this context, the fact that what's happening with African-Americans can show us or be an early indicator of what might happen with all Americans. So when we look at, um, you know, if we go back in history a bit, uh, you know, in the 1960s, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, then an official at the Labor Department, he wrote this report, uh, the so-called Moynihan Report, uh, which received extraordinary attention and was very controversial. You know, he lamented the decline in marriage among African Americans. And at that time, something like, you know, 30% or 25%, 30% of black children were born to unmarried couples. Well, now, you know, flash forward half a century and 40% of children generally in American society are born to unmarried couples. So, white people now are having children without being married at the same at a greater rate than black people were you know, half a century ago when people thought, oh, this is such a crisis. And, and I'm not saying that it is a crisis or isn't a crisis. The important point there is that black people were embodying a change that was going to sweep American society. And, and, and in a sense, we were the leading edge of that. And we see the same sort of development when you look at educational achievement and college and so forth now. Uh, black women have long outnumbered black men in, in college and in entry into professions. Uh, now we see the same trend among white people where we have more you know, white women in college, say, than we have white men. And you know, so they're experiencing the same thing, thing that black people have already experienced. And some of the consequences are going to be the same. Uh, is, it, is, is this one of the factors that's driving marriage rates lower Yes, it is. Right. And that, the, again, we need to think about how the meaning of marriage has changed over time. Right. It used to be that marriage was obligatory, that there was almost a mandate to marry um, because the law kind of channeled people into marriage. Uh, it was illegal in you know 1960, say, or 1950. It was illegal to have sex without being married. I mean, it wasn't prosecuted all the time, but it was really illegal. So like you had to get married if you wanted to have sex legally. And if you had a child without being married in 1950, uh, that child was subject to all manner of stigmatization and discrimination and legal mistreatment. And, you know, it was a bad situation. Right. So so marriage was mandated. But now we've really removed all of those or most of the legal uh, prohibitions or the legal restrictions or the burdens associated with being unmarried. So now people can live a life without being married and it's fine, right? You, you, so people have the choice to marry rather than the compulsion to marry. And you know what that means is that if, you have a woman say who is graduate is a graduate, say, from a college and has a job, maybe at a bank and is working and earning money and is living a life that is, you know, has a lot of freedom. She might say, like, why do I need to marry this guy? I don't have to, I don't have to get married. Even if I want to have children, I can have children on my own, right? And I can raise them how I see fit. And so that's the choice that people have. And if you have that choice, you're not going to decide to get married unless the other person is bringing a lot to the relationship and bringing a lot to you. And if you have this educational and economic mismatch between men and women, it just stands to figure there are going to be a lot of people who say, hey, maybe I don't need to be married. Um, because I can live well on my own, and if I don't have another person who's going to really enhance and enrich my life, uh, I'll just bypass that. So, so that's part of the story for why marriage is declined, and it's not, you know, it is. It, it, I mean, this is just a description. I'm not approving or opposing that change. This is just a description of why marriage rates have declined so much. Uh, part of it is that marriage has become more of a choice rather than a mandate. And people, uh, if you're doing well, there's no obligation to to get married or requirement to get married. So, and we do see that among black women in particular. Um, You know, black professional women are less likely than white professional women to get married. Uh, And that's, you know, for many of them, that's making a decision that's right for them. The other issue though that comes up here is that for some of those women, uh, the black women who don't marry, some of them might actually prefer to marry, but I mean, they actually do want to marry and raise a child with a partner, but the shortage of black men puts them in a bind. And so they have this choice of either to, as I put it, uh, and this does sound pejorative, but to marry down, and I mean it more descriptively than pejoratively, but to marry a man who's less educated, less accomplished, lower earning, all of that, or they could marry out, that is marry someone of a, of a different race. And you know, part of the, the impulse of my book, frankly, is to uh, consider why black women don't marry out more and to really dissect the forces and the factors that result, in black women not marrying people of other races, the same way we see among other groups, I, and I can say more about that. And we can. There's a lot more there.
0: There is a lot more there. There certainly is. And um, the the statistic that's most fascinating to me, two statistics, is that one, African American women, black women, are the least likely, out of any race in this country, to marry outside of their race. Right. Yes. That's one. Number two black men however that's not the same story right and i think the african-american community in the black community it creates a very interesting dynamic when we see who dates out when we see who marries out and most importantly when we see who gets criticized who gets chastised or who just gets accepted for doing no one says anything so could you actually break down more in what's stopping African American women because as we've said if you're doing well for yourself if you have freedom you don't want to get married you don't have to get married right you're living your life but if you do want to get married and you want to marry someone of equal status with you again not being pejorative but just yep. same achievement yep. level right but you're like oh i can't marry outside of my race that, that's a particular bind and that has long lasting effects so could you break down that, that more for us please
1: yeah so let me say so um typically right when it has been the case historically when there's talk of interracial marriage among Black people, the focus is on Black men, right? And Black men, and there's a stereotype of Black men get successful and then they leave the Black woman and they choose a white woman. And, you know, there's a stereotype about that. And and there is some truth to the stereotype, right? That um, interracial marriage is more likely. um, Generally in society, the more educated people are, right cuz we I mean we live in segregated environments and one of the places where you do meet people of other races is if you if you go to college and if you move up the educational hierarchy if you work in a you know major corporation and you're black you come in contact with you know people of other races and so there actually is more integration in the sense uh, as you you know move out of maybe where you were born and embark upon an educational and professional journey you encounter lots of different people lots of different races Uh, But there's been a lot of criticism of Black men who marry interracially, uh, and especially among Black women who understandably feel that Black men are already in short supply. So that if a Black man then marries a non-Black woman, it's as though we've lost him, you know, and he's going and abandoning us.
0: The question of loss, that's so interesting, and this is a complete tangent, but I remember my freshman year, this is a very interesting story, my freshman year, And I should note as a bit of contextualization, I had spent the summer abroad back home in Cameroon, right? Since I'm from West Africa. So majority black country, race becomes very important here. So I come here to Harvard, I'm just minding my business. And I was talking to a friend my freshman year, maybe mid-September, and I said to him, I said, listen, I feel as if the black community just doesn't like me because I get all these stares and I don't understand. And he looks at me and he says, yeah, you know, I've heard get-out jokes, and in the group chat they said we lost one, and a dark-skinned sister at that. And the idea of loss, right? The idea that because this person is dating out of their race, we've suddenly lost them. I think that's fascinating.
1: Yeah, there's a lot. People have this sense that that um, uh, you know, that that in that within-group marriage, and this is true among all groups, right? There's a sense that we're sort of Losing something as a group, uh, if someone marries outside the group, right? And this is not only
0: yeah. And I was just dating this. Woman. Yeah, or even dating. Yeah, even
1: dating. Yeah, and, and you know, and part of the pressure from that for that tell me, I mean, it comes from you know families and communities. You know, you can imagine that they might have an interest that's different than the interest of the individual. So you know, your parents, your community, where you grow up, and and those groups. They have an interest in sort of perpetuating the group uh, in that way, and so there are all of those pressures that we um, uh, that are created by families, groups, these broader communities. That uh, again, we all groups experience them, but among Black people, they're especially acute because of this numbers imbalance, right? And especially because once you as you move up the educational hierarchy. Uh, the number of black people gets to be fewer and fewer, and so there's a sense of scarcity there. Um, so that leads to criticism of, of black men, though. But you know, one of the interesting things, of course, is that and then black men do outmarry at you know double, maybe maybe more. You know, I haven't looked at the numbers most recently, but black men outmarry substantially more than black women do. But they don't; they're not actually. Uh, diverging from American patterns in doing that. They're actually conforming to American patterns. That is, if you look at any group, um, intermarriage has been rising dramatically. Uh, Intermarriage was only legalized across the United States in 1967. Uh, But since that time, the numbers have gone up incredibly. Uh, And if we look at, at Asian Americans, if you look at Latinos, even if you look at whites, the largest single group intermarriage rates are growing for men and women in those groups. So intermarriage rates have increased for Black men, but they've increased in the same way they've increased for other groups. Black women here are actually the outlier. Black, black women are, in fact, the as you mentioned, the least likely of any minority group to marry across racial lines. So the question is sort of like how come black women are not doing what every other group is doing, right? Latino women outmarry a lot, Asian American women outmarry a lot. How come black women are not doing so? And and that's I mean that's and that's the, the big question and and it's a very sensitive question I should ask, uh, which generates some controversy. Uh, if you want to start an argument and a disagreement and have tempers flare, uh, raise that question uh, among people and. Uh, you will likely have a vigorous debate about that, um, and it is a very personal, uh, and, it, and it brings together uh, these personal feelings that people have and their sense of the sort of political valence of the you know the black family uh, and the desire to have a strong black community. Right? There are all these crisscrossing impulses that people have um, in terms of of, of Explaining though, you know, why black women don't intermarry, there there are a lot of different factors, right? Um, The thing that a lot of people would resort to, to uh, explain it, is that black women are not viewed as attractive by men of other races. Uh, People would say, well, there's a white standard of beauty that disadvantages black women and this is how black women are discriminated against uh, in the marriage market or the relationship market, just as they're discriminated against in society more broadly, uh, and that Black women are put on the bottom. Uh, and this is part of in a continuation of a long history in which Black women have been disadvantaged. So there's, you know, a lot of strong intuitions that people have. And there's truth, actually, empirically. People, You know, we research this, and there's actually some truth to that. But it's not the entire story either. Um, the other part of the story is that Um, Black women have, you know, in some way been convinced or convinced themselves that they should not, either cannot or should not marry across racial lines or partner with men of other races. Uh, And that's where it really gets interesting, frankly, to look at the in, in some detail the stories that, you know, that women tell themselves and then we tell black women about uh, why they can't intermarry uh, or why they should not intermarry. Uh, And once we scrutinize those stories, we find that most of them don't really hold up. uh, And that in fact, black women have much greater options than they've been led to believe. Um, Let me also note that, I mean, so is married for white people I wrote 10 years ago now. And I think things have changed. I mean, at the heart of this, this, this problem, I think of of black women not marrying across racial lines, at the heart of the problem is that there's been a stigma uh, and a social pressure um, that has burdened black women and that has limited their options uh, and made them feel like traitors or as though they're betraying the race as though they're you know, as though they this is as though it's not a possibility for them to find a partner of a different race. Um, I think now that that is changing. Uh, I mean, we have a, a president, a vice president right now, who is a black woman who's married to a non-black man, and and it wasn't an issue, right? I mean, and she's on a big stage, and 20 years ago, I think she would have gotten much more criticism than has been the case. Uh, we have a mayor of New York City who's a white man who's married to a black woman, uh, Bill de Blasio and his wife. They're an interracial couple. And, you know, when he ran for office much earlier in his career, and I write about this in the book, he was, he was criticized and she was criticized for being an interracial couple. Uh, it was something that people used as a, as a, a negative and a, a slur almost against them. And, but he won the race. But now I think it's much less of an issue, um, the fact that they are an interracial couple. And, and I think this is a good thing because what it means is that we're moving closer to a time when Black women can have the same freedom that other people do to marry whoever they want. <laughs> And, the, and the, the be with whoever they want, whatever the person's race, right? And, and I think that, you know, in the context of making these sort of intimate personal decisions, the individual's best interest should predominate. And that should be given primacy over questions of allegiance to the group. And, you know, what does this mean for the community and all of that? Because the best thing that you can do for yourself, for your community, for the nation, for the world, is to try to be the best you that you can be. And if the person who helps you to be the best you that you can be is a person of, the diff- of a different race, that should matter no more than if they're a person of your same sex. I mean, you should have the freedom to make that choice in a way that best furthers and enhances and enriches your life. And it's a tragedy that we have been so complicit in denying black women that freedom. Uh, and then black men, frankly, have been very complicit in denying black women that freedom as well, because many black men have sought to you know, convince black women uh, in essence that it's either me or no one. Um, and, and that's counterproductive.
0: Right. And the me or no one, you talked earlier about these sort of myths or these sort of ideas that exist that Black women believe about, oh, if I date out, no one will find me attractive on the dating market because racism, quite honestly. But I think Black women ask us, is this person fetishizing me? And I think that's another barrier that sort of exists. And I do a lot of reading on theory for my own coursework and my own just education. And I still don't know what constitutes fetishization or constitutes this idea. Because someone of another race is interested in you or is attracted to you, the basis of that is a sort of dehumanizing sexification, which isn't a word, but it is a word now. In your, in your research or from your own experience, have you dealt with that or have you addressed this idea of, will you be fetishized if you date outside of race, if you marry outside of your race?
1: Yeah, well, one of the big fears, and, and I think a lot of what, what keeps people apart uh, is fear, frankly. Um, And this is true with relationships in general, by the way, right? (laughs) A lot of times people, uh, you know, have fears that are kind of deep within them that shape their decisions in in life, in relationships. And when we add race to the mix, those fears are compounded many times. So there are, um, you know, many Black women. I've, 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 in my, you know, research for this book and, and other work, I've encountered many black women who would say that, you know, they steer clear of interracial relationships because they don't want to be viewed as a fetish object and they don't want to be, you know, treated a certain way. Um, and you know, Asian American women have also expressed that, right? That that's something that they're concerned about. And those are those fears are rooted in something real, right, in society, which is that, yes, men do have racialized images of women, right, and sort of stereotypes of women. And, I mean, that is a part of American culture, right, that it does put people into into boxes and attach certain qualities to them. And so, you know, it could be, that when two people of different races come together, they're viewing people, each other through this haze of sort of racialized uh, racial and gender sort of stereotypes. So that is a real phenomenon in society. But then what can happen is that, let's say I'm a black woman, if I'm so uh, worried about, you know, being viewed uh, through this lens, of, of racism, basically, that I say I won't have any intimate relationship with a white man because I don't want to be viewed that way. The moment I do that, then I'm kind of doing the same thing to white men that I'm worried about them doing to me because I'm assuming that there's no one I can interact with who would see me as a person and an individual and you know appreciate me for who I am rather than simply as a you know, racial sexual category. And 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 that's the challenge, right? Is to get beyond that, that that the mutual stereotypes um, on both sides. And and so, you know, part of the, the story of the book is is that you know just highlighting the extent to which what can keep people apart is really the stereotypes that we invest in about each other rather than the reality of what the other people are. Right. So um, and that's part of the challenge of of our society writ large, is to try to uh, especially at this time of polarization and partisanship is really to be able to see other people as individuals and just people rather than to attach some set of characteristics to someone because of their race, because of their sex, because of their sexual orientation, all of that, right? We need to engage more as people. Um, And you would think we would be doing that in our intimate relationships, uh, but sometimes not.
0: Right, right, no, certainly there there are many points there. I think the first point, the idea that, the idea that with interracial relationships, the default is a white man. I think that's an interesting sort of idea, right? And also too, this idea that only white men Could fetishize me. That's another interesting point, right? I do believe that anti-blackness is global, so like it has permeated many cultures. This idea that oh, if I dated, let's say, a guy from like Guatemala, he wouldn't have these certain ideas about me as a black woman. Then let's say if I dated a guy from like the UK, right? I think that's a particular point. And to your point of the larger American society and sort of this idea that we must see each other as individuals and not sort of glaze on each other's stereotypes and ideas. So it leads to more fruitful, more productive situations. I think that's a really important idea. And I worry that maybe we could be losing that Just, just a little bit, right? We get into our own little corners, our own little groups, and we start talking as like us versus them a bit too much. You've seen a lot of things and you're a professor at Stanford Law School. And so I'm sure you've dealt with really incredible people and you've seen a lot of incredible things in your life. How do you see these sort of dynamics changing, these relational dynamics changing for better or for worse?
1: Yeah, yeah. Let me you raise a number of really interesting points. So let me say that one, that you know, the black-white divide takes up a lot of space when we talk about race and interracial issues. But you know, when we think about American society, it's it's incredibly diverse in terms of people's backgrounds. I mean, this really is a a unique place in the world uh, in terms of the mix of peoples and their origins. So what this means practically for for Black women is, you know, there are men who are not Black and also lots of men who are not white who are out there. (laughs) And, um, you know, these are, uh, you know, people who are, um, you know, uh, available and, and, you know, should be viewed as kind of potential partners. Um, so, you know, that, that's also a kind of a complexity that's sort of flattened or that people try to look past that we have this, this world with all of these uh, different people um, who are, are kind of in the mix. Uh, in terms of of dating pools and and relationships. So we shouldn't fixate on, you know, black-white relationships, right? We should recognize the multiplicity of possibilities that are out there. One point you highlighted that is incredibly important and and it's sort of nuanced um, is that we tend to focus on as a society, uh, racial dynamics or racial issues or stereotypes when we have people of different races so the assumption, for example, is that, you know, if I'm if I'm a, a black person and I'm in a relationship with a white person, then race becomes an issue. And I have to be concerned with how they see me and how their stereotypes at work here and all of that. But then my assumption is that. But if I'm in a relationship with a black person, race just kind of recedes to the background. But the reality, I think, is that once you think about it, it becomes clear that race actually can be an issue even in same race relationships. And it might be an issue in different ways, or the racial dynamic might be different. But it's not that, I mean, Black people also have perceptions of Black people, uh, so that even when they're in a relationship with another Black person, there's still a racial dynamic there and one of the dominant dynamics and to be very direct is um, what people have called colorism which is that you know black men as a category right this is a generality not everyone as a category um, you know black men have a strong preference for lighter skin black women and there's a long history to this, right? And which is tied to slavery and how slaves and field slaves and how light skin was a marker of status, right? But light skin has long been a marker of status among African-Americans. Uh, and for women, light skin has been, for Black women, light skin has been a marker of beauty in the eyes of Black men. So that is a racial dynamic going on there. Right. And that's something that's that's very personal, because, you know, if you talk to to darker skinned black people, in particular, black women who grew up in the United States, you know, they will often have stories that are that are heartbreaking about interactions with other black people in which they were made fun of. They were criticized for their complexion. So and there still is today a lot of this colorism, uh, within Black American culture. So uh, so what that means, though, practically is that um, you know, you can't like get away from race just by limiting yourself to, to black people in terms of you know social relationships or inner or you know intimate relationships. You can't get away from race. Race is still there, right? And then more concretely, what it means, for, for Black women is, you know, anti-Black racism, it, you know, it might result in disadvantaging Black women vis-a-vis Black men as well. In other words, for example, you know, there have been lots of studies on people's response to others on dating websites. Uh, and one, one outcome or finding that's frequently mentioned is that you know, people respond to black women less frequently than they respond to women of other races. And that's true, and that's real, right? But it's also the case, and this is rarely mentioned, that black men respond to black women less frequently than they do to women of other races too. And if we were to look at the response rate of black men to darker skinned black women, we would find that that's probably even lower than the response rate to lighter skinned Black women. So there is, within American culture, I mean, there is something that disadvantages Black women, but it's not limited only to white men or even non-Black men. We see the same dynamic among Black men, too. So once you recognize that, it it kind of uh, opens things up. And, 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 And frankly, you know, one of the, you know, I even, you know, wonder or query in the book, whether, you know, it might be the case, and this is hard to prove, but, you know, there might be white men or non-black men who are less invested in colorism than black men are, right? So, I mean, if we think about someone like Serena Williams, for example, right, who, again, is someone else who's a big, I mean, she's obviously a, a, a major worldwide personality, And her husband is white, you know, and she's not the, um, you know, does not conform to the, quote, white standard of beauty. Um, But there might be among the universe of non-Black
0: men, people out
1: there who are less invested in that than some Black men are
0: even. I call it the politics of desire. And I'm sure someone more studied and accomplished has already coined that. So I apologize if I'm copywriting or invalidation of a copyright, but the politics of desire as it relates to black women and black men and the color of our skin, it's another fascinating question. And I try to write about it actually my freshman year. I called it the black male gaze because I was talking about Lil' Kim and the sort of evolution she underwent. And I was talking to my teaching fellow because he was the one responsible for grading it. And I said, I have this idea the black male gaze, just this idea that for black men, there's a different aesthetic preference than for white men. And uh, he was in opposition because he said, no, 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 no. One, that hasn't been founded, right? No other scholars have talked about it. And as a freshman, what do I know? And two, he said, don't you think it would be rather internalized white male gaze rather than the independent black male gaze? And I said, no, I think there's, I think there's a difference, right, between the sort of internalized white male gaze, which is what he thought a black male gaze is, versus an independent black male gaze. And I think it speaks to your point of are there non-black men out there who are not as invested in the color spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. Who, when they date, it doesn't matter if she's medium-skinned or light-skinned or dark-skinned. And can we, as black women, right, can we sort of take a leap of faith <laughs> and seek, and, uh, and colors, and mean, Leap of particular, faith, yes. A leap of faith, yes, a leap of faith. Because I think it all comes down to faith, right? It comes down to this idea that there are, one, principally good men out there, two, good men who won't fetishize me, three, good men who, you know, won't disregard me because I am dark skin, right? And I think that's a a very real, real concern, right? It's grounded in very real historical events. And I don't quite know the solution for colorism, because I think it also relates to this idea of a Eurocentric beauty standard. And Mm -hmm. I've talked to many friends about this, and I say, well, we're not white. So why do we care? And why do we, maintain the Eurocentric beauty standard amongst ourselves right and i joke with another friend i tell i said you know you're my beauty standard right so if i look like you i'm good
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> if i look like you i'm good that that's all i need to know these are really important questions right because it impacts how we feel about each other and that impacts or not each other but ourselves and that impacts how we show up in the world right and how we show up in the world leads to so many different things so I don't have concrete answers.
1: Yeah, no. This I love those. I love the idea of the black male gaze. Part of the problem. This is so interesting. So there's, um, you know, traditionally and typically, and even and things are changing. But traditionally, right? Even raising this issue issue of these within group politics and the very idea of articulating something like the black male gaze that would that itself would be viewed as. Uh, a violation of the rules. Like, don't do that, people would say. right? That's a betrayal. That's airy, dirty laundry. That's, you know, that, that's kind of punching down. That That's doing something that, that is, uh, you know, inappropriate. Right? And the, his history that that's a part of, frankly, is one in which, you know, Black men have been viewed as the embodiment of the group. And black women have been expected to just kind of take one for the team um, and, you know, keep quiet, keep your business within the group, uh, not expose any sort of divisions or uh, problems within the group. Um, And, you know, concrete embodiment of this is just, you know, the idea of domestic violence, right? That you have violence within uh, homes where both partners are black and, you know, ideas that the women are not supposed to say anything as a way to be loyal as a way of being loyal to the race
0: do you know do you know that that's where intersectionality came from yes dr kimberly Crinshaw yes. in mapping the Margin, she talked about how minority women black women will face domestic violence within their group but then they won't go out to the police yes. and say anything because they fear that they'll only be adding fuel to the fire of the sort of negative Yes. perspective yes. that outsiders have of the of the men in their group. And so intersectionality, she she talked about it as it relates to domestic violence. So it's fascinating yeah. now how it means everything else, but yes. Yes.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. But so, in, I mean, in a way, this book, I mean, Miss Marriage for White People, it's, it's a very feminist book. I think it was maybe too feminist a book even for some people, because it's really saying that, you know, just as women should not keep quiet about physical violence at the hands of Black men, They shouldn't keep quiet about emotional or, you know, interpersonal or intimate, you know, psychological violence uh, at the hands of black men and should feel free to actually um, expose some of this. Right. And and talk about it. Uh, But that's a very uh, delicate issue because, of course, black men might not be very uh, enthused. Uh, about the idea of people scrutinizing them and their choices uh, and preferences. And Black women might feel as though they're sort of, you know, still vaguely kind of being disloyal uh, to the group uh, by doing that. Uh, but 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 I think there is some um, change now, uh, frankly, compared to 10 years ago or 20 years ago. I think that Black women are beginning to feel more that, more the the willingness and the ability, the inclination to assert the importance of their own interests, even if those interests are at odds with or intention in some ways with the interests of black men, and I think that's a a good thing, frankly, uh, for society.
0: It it certainly is, and I look forward to seeing where that sort of assertion will take us. I think that's important for all women, quite honestly. It, it appears to be I don't want to say a female trait, but a socialized. Female trait to accommodate at, yes. at our own expense. Yes. So I look forward as a society yes. where women say no, no, no.
1: Yes. Let me let me just emphasize though that the you know the real challenge we have now, and this extends beyond intimate relationships, is to both you know recognize some of these broad um, trends or forces in society um, that it that it is the case, say that. You know, women have been disadvantaged in in certain ways by men um, in ways that have served the interests of men. And it is the case that that white people have disadvantaged non-white people in certain ways. And so that's all real in a structural sense or systemic sense. But it's also the case that people are people. And the fact that, you know, white people historically, right, have been racist, say, against black people, that doesn't mean that every white person is racist. Much less that everything that a white person does is racist, or that you can determine whether someone is racist by knowing their race. It doesn't mean that white people are necess- are always villains, and then it also is not the case that black people are always, uh, you know, the the you know the innocent victim, or can claim the moral high ground. So you know, the hard thing again is to recognize both these broad patterns but then also never lose sight of the humanity of individual people who are complicated and are composed of lots of different identities and have lots of different stories um, and need to be encountered as individual people first, right? And that that's the hard thing, right? And, and that's true uh, whether we're talking about intimate relationships or whether we're talking about politics and who vote for who and why they vote and all these other issues that are part of the public realm.
0: Right, right, exactly. Remember their humanity. And on that note, this interview will end. Thank you so much, Professor Banks.
1: Thank you so much. It has been a, a pleasure to be with you and I cannot wait to see what you do in the future.